So when Bodhi started to get anxious and, and sick, you know, with, with COVID, uh, we did our square breathing every day. We, we practice our gratitude every day. And um, it was so clear. This is where I want parents to understand. This is not just, you know, a side optional. Oh, I'll practice gratitude when I have time. It really is one of the things I think that helped Bodhi move, move the needle to getting him out of the hospital so fast. Um, because of course, in the hospital, he's monitored 24-7. Yeah. He had a pulse oximeter on his finger. I could watch his heart rate on the monitor, watch his oxygen saturations. As his oxygen levels would dip, of course, as a mama, right? My mama brain kicks in. I'm like, okay, Bodhi, are you okay? You know, how do you feel? Right. I'd be like, okay, breathe, breathe. And then he'd be, he'd kind of start to get worked up his oxygen levels. Of course, they would drop even further. And he, and at one point he's like, mama, stop. You're scaring me. Right. So when I would stop myself, calm, I tell Bodhi, let's stand up, you know, let's, let's do our square breathing right? Let's say really loud and proud, our healing mantras. You know, my lungs are strong. My body is strong. I'm getting stronger and stronger every day. Literally within minutes, his oxygen levels would pop back up and go even higher than they were, you know, before. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Betty's welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It is your host, me, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I sat down to speak to my friend and my colleague, pediatrician, Dr. Elisa Song. And we are talking all about kids, COVID-19. We talk about the V word. We talk about the flu vaccine. We talk about all the things that you as a parent want to be understanding and getting it straight from a pediatrician. And just before we get into that, I wanted to just take a moment to read out a review that came in for the podcast, uh, which was lovely. This is from Miss Chuck, and she titled this review, Finally, a Podcast That Goes Deeper. I love how relatable all the information is, daily tips at the same time, life changing. Short, but sweet and super appreciated. Thank you so much for taking the time to write that. And like always, if you feel like this podcast is doing good by you, if you have found value in this podcast, I would absolutely treasure a five-star review from you on iTunes, a review on iTunes, or a rating wherever you listen to the pod, be it Spotify or Google or wherever the podcast is reaching you because it helps more Bettys like you find this podcast. So let's get into our conversation with Dr. Elisa Song. So who is she? She is a Stanford, NYU, UCSF uh, trained holistic pediatrician. She founded Whole Family Wellness, which is an integrative pediatric practice in California. 
Hoffman is regarded as one of the uh, best holistic pediatric practices in the country. She is the creator of Healthy Kids, Happy Kids, which is dedicated to empowering parents to take charge of their children's health. So she is not only a pediatrician, but she also integrates conventional pediatrics with functional medicine, holistic nutrition, homeopathy, acupuncture, herbal medicine, and essential oils. She is a lecturer for the Center for Education and Development in Clinical Homeopathy, the Academy for Pain Research, the Institute for Functional Medicine, and the Holistic Pediatric Association. Now, I wanted to have Dr. Song on the podcast because she is a woman after my own heart. She really is able to look at the literature and disseminate the information and make it usable and consumable, especially for the families that she cares for. So what did we talk about today? Well, she is one of the first people in my social group that had COVID-19. So there, I haven't known that many people, uh, but she was one of the first and it happened back in March and her children also came down with COVID-19. So she has really gone on this journey of understanding the disease, especially as it relates to children. So we talked about the infection rate in children with COVID-19, what some of the complications might be. Uh, so we talked about something called MISC and we talked about the mechanism for infection. So we talked about ACE2 receptors, uh, receptors and enzymes. Well, it's technically an enzyme, but a lot of people refer to it as, as a receptor. Uh, CD147, the NLRP3 inflammasome. So we get a little geeky uh, and talk about cytokine storms and how we can modulate the um, the NLRP3 inflammasome for better outcomes. We talk about the difference between innate and acquired immunity, the psychological stress that our little kidlets are under. And then we finish off the conversation talking about the V word. We talk about the vaccine around COVID-19. Now, in all honesty, I have dodged questions about uh, the vaccine as if I was in the matrix and just dodging them left and right. But I thought that Dr. Song was the most appropriate guest to bring on this podcast to talk about the evidence around the COVID-19 vaccine for adults as well as for children. And then we also spoke about the flu shot this year. So whether or not, what the data is telling us about the efficacy of the flu shot this year, where she is getting her, you know, where we are looking at, we're looking at Cochrane reviews, which are highly, they're regarded as sort of the gold standard for, um, for evidence-based practices. So we talked about, um, what this flu shot might have in store. And then we talked to, we also talked about some of the protocols that she has come up with in terms of not only as a prophylactic, so if you're trying to improve your child's immunity as a preventative uh, means, but also if your child does get sick, how we can help your child recover quickly and you know to build what she calls cellular resilience. And of course, you can see why I love her because I often talk about something called cellular grit, which is one and the same, just substituting out one great word for another. 
So I hope that you enjoy that this is full of great resources. The show notes are going to help you out in this one if you kind of get tripped up on what an ACE2 uh, enzyme is or any any of the inflammasomes and all kind of the technical stuff. The show notes are going to help you out. But this is going to be incredibly useful for any parent who is going into this sort of deeper fall, you know, winter time when we tend to see a bit more sickness. We're out and, you know, not as out, out as often. Maybe we're having a few more comfort foods. Maybe we're not moving as much as we should. And we tend to get sicker through the winter months. So I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Elisa Song. All right, everyone. I am so excited because I have my friend and colleague, Dr. Elisa Song on the podcast. Welcome, Doc. Happy to have you here. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm so glad to be here. This is perfect timing. Oh, it really is. And I, I've been wanting to, we've been kind of exchanging emails for a couple of months now. I've wanted to have you on to talk about COVID, um, you know, and our kids. And, you know, like I was just telling you in the pre-chat, if there's like a population that's really been impacted, you know, it's our, it's our children. And I think you have a very unique perspective because you're, you know, a, a pediatrician, you're a doctor, you're a mother as well. Um, and I think it's especially unique when you are, when you are a doctor, like I often find like when my kids are sick, you know, I'm of course worried like any, any human and any parent would be, but then I also have my face like buried in the literature and I'm giving them like, you know, mega doses of whatever and making them drink <laughs> the brine of my sauerkraut bottle oh, and like all the crazy things. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to start off this discussion and we're going to talk a lot about, uh, COVID-19, um, and some of the mechanisms, uh, for the disease, particularly in our children. Mm -hmm. But I know that you have had, your family has been personally touched, um, by the pandemic. And I remember, like, I think I was saying to you is in March, I think I remember you posting about it in our, in, we, we were part of a group together and I would love it if you could, maybe we could start off our conversation with, just giving some color to the listeners in terms of what your experience has been so far with COVID as a, as a mom, and then we can move into your clinical observations of what you're seeing in practice. Sure. And, and you're right. I mean, everything that I do for my patients is what I do for my kids. And I learned so much from my own kids, right? And in what works and what doesn't work. And uh, back in March, so it was March, Friday the 13th, right? That date will be forever in my mind. So Friday the 13th was when our schools here in the States uh, and in California announced that we would uh, not be coming back until after spring break because this pandemic was starting to really surge and we kind of needed a plan for um, how we would continue to keep the school safe. Nobody knew at that time that we wouldn't be co going back at all. So that was Friday the 13th. Yeah. We're home and I thought, okay, we'll just, this is temporary. I'll be working from home. Um, and then about a week into being home, my daughter, Kenzie, developed a fever out of the blue. Now she gets really high fever. So, um, and remember at this point in the middle of March, we had no idea what was going on with COVID and kids. Reports really were not there. Uh, and, you know, we didn't have any reports of COVID in our schools and really in our community. And so when Kenzie developed the fever to 104 and a half and she was on the couch, you know, rosy cheeks, um, a little bit of a cough. And I thought, wow, this must be some sort of a weird late flu, right? Because we certainly had a bad flu season last year. Um, and I even at that point, 
I mean, gosh, it seems like a lifetime away, right? March is only seven months away, you know, ago. But um, back then, I couldn't even do a COVID swab on her. I was on the wait list with Quest Labs to get those little Q-tips to be able to do swabs. So yeah. I finally, about four days into her illness, got some swabs in the office. And I did send for COVID. I checked for her, her for influenza. They both came back negative. Right. But then she progressed on to developing her fever lasted for, I mean, almost a full seven days and her cough started to get worse and she was really winded. I did have an oxygen saturation meter, a pulse oximeter, and she, she dipped down a little bit, but never below about 94, 95%. Normal is 97% to a hundred percent. So she dropped a little bit, but I felt comfortable enough with her at home. Of course, as a pediatrician, I have a little bit more of a comfort level. Um, And we just watched, you know, so for seven days, fever, yeah, I made her exercise with me, right? Because I'm like, oh, you got to work out your lungs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then about 14 days into her illness, it was like the light switch and she was fine. Now, in the meantime, I'm doing my normal things that I do for influenza. I mean, I'm an integrative holistic pediatrician. So I was using my homeopathic remedies. I was doing, gave her, giving her vitamin D, um, a Chinese herbal formula called Windbreaker. I mean, just the works, right? Um, 10 days later, totally fine. 14 days later, you know, back to being her complete normal self. Um, in the meantime, I had done three COVID tests because I'm like, what is this, right? It's so strange. Mm-hmm. Um, about a week into Kenzie being sick, Bodhi developed um, a really bad stomach ache. I mean, one night he was sitting there crying in front, you know, while we we're having dinner, my tummy hurts, my tummy hurts. And then that night his head started to hurt. He had a low grade fever. Um, and that night he saw, he had hallucinations. I mean, scared the bejesus out of me, right? I mean, he's, he's like saying, mommy, mommy. And he was seeing things like shadows in the walls in his bedroom. He was hearing really mean voices saying really, um, I mean, he was so, he didn't even want to tell me. He's like, they're saying bad words, right? He's nine, right? He's saying, he was like, mm-hmm. they're, they're really mean. Um, and it was the tummy ache that really, really was his predominant symptom. Um, Low-grade fever, next day, you know, a little bit of a cough, but he never really had much of a cough, but he started to look a little labored as the days went on, right? Um, and, And as his course progressed, he developed a rash, um, he started to develop shortness of breath, and um, his oxygen levels did start to drop. I mean, he dropped down to low 90s. I actually had oxygen at home for him, um, and I was waiting and watching. It was on day seven of his illness. So on the third COVID test for Kenzie, the hers came back positive. Bodie's came back negative, right? So wow. his, his remained negative. So but, three tests and the first two came back negative. The last one came back positive. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So then I'm thinking, well, Bodie must have COVID. And yet at that point, if we remember GI symptoms, neurologic symptoms, like hallucinations and headaches were not being described, right? right. So right. I'm thinking what on earth is going on here? right? And he, his personality completely changed. So, you know, if, if your listeners are familiar with something called PANS or PANDAS, pediatric acute neuropsychiatric syndrome, um, certain infections or toxins can trigger these neuropsychiatric symptoms, um, behavioral symptoms, OCD, tics, um, you know, aggressive behaviors. And so, and this is, that's one of my areas of expertise. And I'd seen different glimmerings of Bodhi maybe having some uh, some reactions to strep, but his personality change was what really scared me. He would go from being, you know, really goofy, spacey, not making eye contact to being really angry and upset. I mean, just like one moment to the, to the next, right? And, and in retrospect, 
if I'd known about something called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children that wasn't described until April, uh, late April, May, you know, out of, out of Italy and Spain and the UK, um, he had all of the symptoms that, you know, he was heading into MISC. Now, at the time, I was, again, doing all the things that I had known through functional medicine and integrated medicine to support him. He did end up in the hospital. His oxygen levels dropped to 88%. And I'm like, this is not something to manage at home, yeah. right? And this was also around day seven, eight, where we had heard that adults were crashing, right? So I'm panicking, right? I bring him to the ER. We're saying goodbye to Kenzie and Bodie at the ER door because only one parent could come in. Oh and I mean, God. that that oh, fear, God. I mean, the, Kenzie was you know, just sobbing, like, when am I going to see you again? And I didn't have an answer for her, right? Because at the time we didn't know what was happening. And I, I mean, that fear that I didn't know if we were going to come out, right? Like what was going to happen in the, in the hospital mm-hmm. um, was something I, I never, ever want any parent to ever feel. Um, luckily, I mean, he, he, uh, within about a day and a half, um, you know, his oxygen levels turn, turned around hallucination stopped, his eyes came back, right? His personality came back and we were out of the hospital within about about 36 hours. But here's the thing. I mean, I was doing things that in the research, right? In in February, when the pandemic was really coming to light in the States, um, I sat down and I did a deep dive into the research, right? Because with the unknown, I mean, you can either bury your head or you can dig into the research. We didn't have a lot of research, but we knew from SARS, the initial epidemic, some things that might be beneficial. And I wrote this, I mean, it was like a tome. It was this huge review, you know, article on, uh, you know, a functional medicine approach to um, COVID-19 right? Or SARS-CoV-1. It wasn't even called COVID back then. Mm-hmm. Um, that article initially that was published in February 28, I think really helped me with the foundations of how to help Bodhi recover so quickly, right? And not develop full-blown MISC. I mean, that article to this to date has had, I mean, over 1.2 million views um, and still is sort of the foundation of what I do and how I work with families um, online and in my practice to support them through COVID-19 to have minimal to no complications. Um, and so with Bodhi, um, I, I gave him melatonin, right? Uh, and the day I gave him melatonin, that's when the hallucination stopped. Hmm. Um, I started him on something called specialized pro-resolving mediators to help normalize the inflammatory cascade that was starting to go out of control. Um, and the day I gave him S- SPMs was when his uh, oxygenation levels you know, dramatically improved within hours he was off his oxygen. So I know that these integrative and functional medicine strategies work and they're also accessible, right? Because for families and, and adults and children who are going through COVID-19, they're not going to have, you know, remdesivir. They probably won't have a physician who's going to prescribe them hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin or dexamethasone or, you know, any of these, um, you know, treatments that, that may or may not be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if we have these accessible tools to manage through this pandemic, we can work through without fear, right? We can have more calm. Just for the just for the listener, um, I, can you explain just a little bit more in depth what MISC is and how that might show up uh, in a child as a as a complication from uh, COVID nineteen? Sure, um, MISC stands for multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Now, back in late spring, out of the UK, there was a report of this Kawasaki disease like illness presenting in children, which seem to be correlated with COVID-19. Now we know more about it. I just want to preface this, you know, as a mom, you know, I don't want to um, lead with fear, 
right? Because yeah. MIC sounds so scary. So I want to reassure parents out there that MIC is still exceedingly rare. Um, you know, how rare? The, do we know how rare? Well, when we look at the CDC report, so the CDC uh, in the U.S. reports every first and third Friday um, of the month the cases of MISC, and to date, even with the uh, you know currently children are making up about ten percent of COVID nineteen infections in the United States. Um, a little bit more. I mean, we're starting to climb a bit um, as schools have opened up and, and we are seeing an increase in numbers in the United States. Uh, but I will tell you the latest numbers. I think that of you know the tens of thousands of children who have been diagnosed with COVID-19 in the United States, to date, there have been a little over a thousand cases. So still very, very, very rare, small, right? Very rare. Um, very rare. Um, and there have been about 20 deaths associated with MISC, so still exceedingly rare. Now, if your your child is that one child that develops MISC, you know, it doesn't matter that it's rare, right? Uh, but this is where I know that uh, I am confident that there are ways that we can prevent MISC from uh, or reduce the likelihood of MISC from occurring. So, what is MISC? You know, it's multi system, right? Inflammation in multiple systems of your body. Um, just uh, last week, as we're recording, there have been reports now of MISA, a very similar phenomenon happening in adults that the CDC is now recognizing. So multi-system inflammatory syndrome in adults. So typically there's a fever. The fever it lasts for over 24 hours um, and multiple systems involved. So more, more than two. So two or more organ uh, in, uh, systems involved. So um, cardiac, the heart. So some kids are presenting with low blood pressure and may need uh, blood pressure support. Kidney problems, um, of course, respiratory problems, shortness of breath, low oxygenation, um, cough, um, hematologic problems. So we'll see in the blood work, right? Evidence of maybe blood clotting or different, different blood markers that are abnormal. Gastrointestinal, we're finding GI symptoms much more common. Um, skin findings, so dermatologic, the COVID toes or just rashes of any sort. Um, and then neurologic. So that's another key feature, headaches, hallucinations, um, the anosmia and the agusia, so the loss of sense of smell and taste. Um, and so with, with these multiple symptoms, sometimes they can mimic Kawasaki. With Kawasaki, you'll also have um, dry bilateral pink eyes. And with Kawasaki syndrome, the heart is really, really affected, the coronary arteries, so the blood vessels in the heart. And they can develop something called aneurysms or um, an outpouching of one of the blood vessels. And that's where Treatments like IVIG may be really beneficial for some kids. Um, as I said, Bodhi seemed like he was really headed towards MISC because he had a fever for seven days. He had the hallucinations, the headaches, the GI symptoms. He had the skin. He developed this hive-like rash on his face and he had the respiratory symptoms. So cough and, and low oxygenation levels. Um, at one point for a brief period of time, he had pink eyes um, uh, mm -hmm. without any discharge. So. Um, MISC were maybe associated with acute illness, but seems as though most kids and adults are presenting two to four weeks after an initial COVID-19 infection. So the initial nasal swab, you know, if you go to the ER, it might not be positive, but they are finding that many of these kids uh, have positive antibodies to COVID-19. Um, and in retrospect, you know, it, it may be that Bodhi had COVID an initial COVID prior to Kenzie, 
um, you know, having had COVID because his nasal swabs remained negative, but he did have antibodies when I tested, you know, our whole family for antibodies. Um, so, cause the question then is, well, why did you and Peter get sick? You know, did you and Peter have it? <laughs> and, you know, Peter and I, we had, um, at that point we said, we thought, well, no, we, we were unscathed. You know, we didn't get COVID-19 and maybe that confirmed that children really don't transmit it as easily. Um, in retrospect, a week before Kenzie got sick, I had a really bad headache for four days, a little low grade fever. I actually um, canceled office hours for two days, which was unheard of for me. Um, and I tested myself for the flu, didn't have COVID swabs at the time to do. Um, and, and Peter had some mild GI symptoms. Um, mostly he just felt a little bit, a little nauseous, right? Mm -hmm. um, in July, when we checked antibodies for all four of us, we all had antibodies. So that's why we think that Peter and I must have had mild illness at that point. Um, so you know, through this experience and doing the deep dive initially into what may be helpful for COVID. Um, and then since, you know, with Bodhi getting sick, doing an even deeper dive, you know, into how to help support families with a little bit more information about the mechanisms, right? The ACE2, the CD147, the NLRP3 inflammasomes. Um, I've been able to now, as I said, help, you know, many, many families, both, both online and in my office, get through COVID-19 with, with cellular resilience, right? That's what we want. You know, the yeah. idea of resilience is, is not never, ever getting sick. It's getting sick and be, being able to handle infections or toxins or whatever insults to our body and our immune system without long-term complications, recovering fully and rapidly, and, you know, even being stronger for the next hit. Right. Well, that's, that's grit, right? That's like, that's what you're talking mm -hmm. about. I, I use the term cellular grit, cellular resilience. We're talking about the same thing. And it's interesting because I, uh, just in, in prep for our conversation today, I know that, um, I don't want to call it hate or trolling, but you know, I think that when this did happen to you, I think that there was this sort of like, who are you? Like you got sick. Like you must not be walking the walk. You must not be walking the talk. And yep. I, I think that there's a um, there's there's no shame <laughs> in getting sick, right? Like, no. there's, I mean, yeah. you are one of the. If if we talk about some of the protocols and the like, someone who walks the walk it's you, but you know, we, you got sick and like, who cares? But I know I'm, I'd love for you to speak to your experience with that. And we were just talking in the pre-chat around mask wearing as well. And like you had recommended like, Hey, there's a, you know, if anyone who's looking for a mask, I found this company really like it. And then, you know, it's like, how dare you write about masks? And, you know, so maybe yeah. you can speak to a little bit of the, um, uh, the, the politicization of, of this whole uh, scenario and that there is actually no shame. in get, if you are someone who is sick, you know, you want to be able to have these tools that you're talking about. We're going to do a, a little bit of a geeky, you know, magic carpet <laughs> ride on the ACE2 and all that. I want to talk about cytokine storms and all that, but, you know, talk a little bit about your experience there. And, you know, what did you learn from having people kind of be like, well, why should we listen to you? You're, you know, you got sick. So what yeah. do you know? You I know? mean, fortunately, the vast majority people were supportive. However, I did have some people comment and say, well, you know, her son got sick. Why should we listen to her? Right. You know, she must not be uh, a great holistic pediatrician if her son needed to be hospitalized. Like, ouch. Right. Like, I know. Oh, and, and at the time it was just, um, and you know, I have to say 
at the moment, you know, in that moment, right back in March 15th, right, when we kind of, well, March 13th, and then subsequently when Bodhi got sick, um, I did have a little bit of a moment where I'm like, wow, why did he get sick? Like, yeah. what, why did Kenzie get sick? Why did we have COVID? Because honestly, I mean, it's kind of a, a little bit spoken of a like a joke, true mom, like, <laughs> spoken like a right? true mom. Like, what I did mean, I do wrong? It's all my fault. Yeah. And, you know, there's, um, you know, with my friends and family there, it's a little bit of a running joke that, you know, really we, uh, my family, my immediate family, we're, we're the only ones we know who've had direct any, you know, any, uh, uh, known people with COVID-19, mm-hmm. right? And and as I think about it, there was a patient of mine uh, two weeks before Kenzie, uh, well, two weeks before the symptoms that I, I might've thought was COVID-19 for me and Peter, um, who came in uh, and he had, maybe about 10 days before, he had uh, a little four-year-old boy, really bad headaches, so much so that his parents brought him to the ER, right? Um, and I saw him in the office. Um, and of course, at that time, I mean, I was sitting this close to him, right. <laughs> looking at his ears, yes. looking at his throat, right? Looking at his nose. Yeah. Um, and we thought, well, maybe he has a sinus infection or sinus congestion, right? It was allergy season. Um, this little boy, um, about three weeks after I saw him, was hospitalized with Kawasaki disease, right? And remember back then, we had no idea that there was this syndrome in children. And I even, on the call with the rheumatologist at the hospital, I said, do you think this could be COVID-19? And they said, no, absolutely not, because his nasal swab was negative. I mean, we know so much more. And when I put the pieces together, um, I, I bet that you know this child, we are in the process of checking antibodies for him right now. Um, but... Um, you know, he, he likely had COVID. Um, I saw him in the office. I probably contracted COVID first, gave it to Peter. And then the kids subsequently developed, you know, Kenzie and then Bodhi, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's true. I mean, as a, as a mom, we think, well, why is this happening? What did I do wrong? Did I not feed him enough vegetables, right? I mean, he's, he's exercising, he's getting enough sleep. We're prioritizing all of these. Well, you know what? Sometimes we just get sick. Right. And, you know, despite our best intentions and and being bulletproof and having resilience that again, that's not ever getting sick, not not ever, ever getting sick is not going to build you cellular resilience. That's right. Right. It is not going to train your immune system. It's not going to train um, your mind to know how to handle, um, you know, serious trauma. Right. Whether it's emotional or whether it's. physiologic or immunologic. So, you know, we take these baby steps and I do think that, you know, whatever you believe in, you know, whatever divine intervention, I think that there really and truly now in retrospect was a reason why this happened in the way that it did, did for me um, so that I could really be able to um, focus on education, evidence-based medicine, you know, bring this information out to parents who really need it because there's so much panic and fear. Um, You know, I I just really want to have parents aware and informed and not live in fear either way, you know, of of what could be going on. You know, we want to make sure that we really use knowledge as power and empowerment and and know what we can to build up that cellular resilience. The rest, we step back and we we try to hold our space of calm, right? Because knowing that anxiety also feeds inflammation, <laughs> right? And then also knowing that if we do get sick, we have tools to be able to recover quickly. 
So, I mean, that's my goal. It's never to spread fear. It's never to spread, um, you know, helplessness. Uh, You know, it's, it's always to impair us as mamas to know what we can do with what we have in the moment. I love what you said around, you know, the point is not to get sick. And I think that we often, and this is not just related to COVID-19, I think this is related to like, as soon as the, you know, um, the child gets a fever, it's like, where's the antipyretic? Like, where's the, where's the thing? We got to get rid of the fever. We got to, we got to take it away. And just like, if you want biceps, you got to work them out. It's the same (laughs) thing with your immune system. You got to, it's got to be exposed to stuff. You got to get sick and you got to, you, it, it helps develop as you, you know, I love this idea of cellular res, uh, resilience because it makes you stronger as you were saying for the next time. And it helps with your recovery. Like you're talking about your kids, like 36 hours afterwards, you know, Kenzie is like, fine. She's not like not a problem. And then 36 hours later, Bodhi's out of the hospital. It's like nothing happened. That is the picture of cellular resilience, even though, even though he has had very extreme symptoms, very scary as a parent to witness that. And I, like you, don't wish that on, on anyone. Um, but it's the, you can look at, when you look at prognosis of, of, of a child or, or any, you know, anyone really, what you're looking for is to mitigate the severity, the duration, and of course the frequency of, of any, uh, you know, of any infection, right? So in this case, coronavirus. So that, I mean, that's a testament to you as well. In terms of well, your- and this is something too that for for families as we're looking into this second surge or third surge, or some people think we never got out of the first surge, whatever you want yeah. to call it, yeah. um, cases are on the rise, right? Mm-hmm. Before this pandemic is over, um, you know, many of us will likely contract COVID nineteen. So how do we? Uh, in a way, this is an opportunity to take this time to build up our immune reserve so that, you know, when we do get exposed, we can recover fully. Um, you know, there, there was a recent report out of South Korea a survey. I mean, they have much, much better data collection than we do here in the States. And, um, you know, 90% of people recovering from COVID-19 are reporting long-term symptoms. Right. I mean, there, there are Facebook groups popping up left and right for long haulers, right? These people with long haul COVID complications, post COVID complications. And we're finding that to be the case as well for children, that there are long haulers, uh, long haul children who are being described. Um, and so, you know, the fact that for Bodhi, I mean, literally, we came home the Saturday morning before Easter Sunday, right? And, you know, that afternoon he was running around the yard and getting ready for the Easter egg hunt, <laughs> you know, and jumping right. on the trampoline. So it was, it was like nothing had happened. And, and to this date, I mean, seven and a half months later, um, no long-term deficits. In fact, there was a, a, a very large survey out of the UK. And this is for people 16 years and up uh, that just came out. But they found that, um, you know, people who had were diagnosed with covid 19 um, or suspected COVID-19, um, they all were presenting with signs of cognitive deficits. Now, the more severe your hospitalization, you know, ICU, ventilation, the more severe the cognitive deficits, but even people who were mild uh, with no respiratory symptoms and no hospitalizations still, you know, months later were having signs of cognitive deficits, especially in the area of executive functioning. And so, you know, we really want to be on the lookout for that and see okay, great. Most of us will have mild to moderate infection. That's awesome to know. The death rate has been you know, really going down, which is terrific. But now we want to think about, okay, 
you know, if we if we are not as afraid of getting it, if we don't have um, you know chronic conditions, right, predisposing factors or serious illness, mm-hmm. how do we then support our immune system so that we're not one of those long haulers? Um, because the the findings now. In, in terms of the long haul population, it's a very different demographic than people who are more at risk of dying and having severe complications. In fact, what, there's a, a physical medicine doctor in, uh, I believe at Mount Sinai in New York, and his clinic pretty much now is filled with patients who are long haulers. Um, and in, in an informal survey that he's done with his patients, the demographic is mostly young women you know, in their 40s who are physically fit without any pre-existing conditions. Um, and so we know already there's an epidemic of chronic disease in children and adults. You know, we know already that there's an increase in autoimmunity uh, in, in both children and adults. And we don't want COVID to now set the stage for once this pandemic is done, we're left with all of these children and adults with chronic conditions. And what is the definition for a long hauler? So is this like po- so post COVID? Is this like a four week? They they have persistent, you know, fatigue, persistent air, like you know, not able to keep their saturation level, their oxygen saturation levels high. Like what is the? Because we talk about long haulers, like we've we've known COVID has been here forever, and it's like it's been here for like a minute, you know. It's, it's been true. Here for like, it's true. So what it is the, what like are the parameter? What are the parameters around being classified as a long hauler? So there's not really a, a a defined definition, but long haulers are really, I mean, months and months later. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating when you look at, you know, people with long haul syndrome, um, I mean, it doesn't even really have an official diagnosis yet because the CDC hasn't really even officially um, recognized, you know, long haulers. And this is where if you are a long hauler, if you know someone who's a long hauler, I mean, my heart goes out to you because it is, you know, patients, I have, you know, one mom who, you know, they contracted COVID. I mean, very, very early on, um, you know, before we were really even aware of COVID in our communities, um, before I was even really aware. And so, you know, I, I wasn't able to support them in the way I can support families now. And, you know, for like months after they were going from doctor to doctor, the, the children in the family and also the mother, because they were having palpitations dizziness, fatigue, intermittent cough, you know, one moment they could be fine, you know, go outside for a walk, another moment in bed because it was too much, right? And made to feel like they were crazy, mm-hmm. right? made to feel like it's just in your head. And now, you know, there's validation, you know, for them finally, because, you know, uh, it is being recognized by more and more physicians, mostly functional medicine physicians. Yes. Um, it is, you know, there are sub- uh, communities on Facebook, you know, that that are supporting one another, um, but, but the sim- and this is the same thing that, that, um, previously, and even now people who are ultimately diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, you know, have to go through, right. Typically many, many, many doctors, many, many tests later being told everything's okay. You know, it's just in your head until finally someone recognizes, look, there are some core functional medicine, biochemical imbalances that we need to address. And when we look at long haulers, or as I take a look uh, on long haulers, and by the time this podcast has come out, uh, I'll have uh, I'll have my article on um, a functional medicine approach to, you know, long haul uh, symptoms um, out. But, you know, with the fatigue, the neurologic symptoms, the POTS, right, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, 
I think that there really are three core imbalances that we, we really need to address and look at. Um, the first is mitochondrial dysfunction because mitochondrial dysfunction, we know viruses are and different infections can be mitotoxic. Yes. Right? We yes. know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fatigue, the poor endurance, the prolonged recovery, those are all symptoms of mitochondrial dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Um, mast cell activation, we know, is, is a predominant feature in many, many chronic illnesses. And so we see that with the flushing and the rashes and the heat and you know the, the, um, the food intolerances that some people are developing. Uh, and then dysautonomia, right? Vagus nerve dysfunction. Vagus nerve dysfunction is a, is a key feature in so many chronic illnesses from autism to chronic fatigue syndrome to um uh, to bipolar i mean we we have all you know schizophrenia there's so many um uh factors that really um hold our vagus nerve in a dysfunctional state the parasympathetic nervous system isn't working i actually think this is one of the most important pieces that you know even in functional medicine we don't have a lot of tools to really normalize um you know, we can give mitochondrial supplements. I talk about a mitochondrial cocktail, you know, for some families that may be beneficial. We can we can give supplements to support mast cell activation. We can look at foods that support our mitochondria. We can look at foods that, um, you know, don't promote mast cell activation, low histamine foods and high quercetin foods. Um, but vagus nerve dysfunction and dysautonomia, sure, there are vagus nerve stimulators. And in fact, there's a fascinating study that was put on hold um, looking at ICU patients and using auricular vagus nerve stimulation right through the ear to prevent and reduce sepsis and cytokine storm. But much of the vagus nerve um, work that we need to do is is self-work, right? It's, um, It's meditation. It's breath work, diaphragmatic breathing. It's heart math, you know, optimizing our heart rate variability. It's practicing gratitude. And these are things that we need to actively do. Um, But I do think that those, if we can look at while we're sick acutely, whether or not it's, you know, you know, severe infection or mild infection, let's support our mitochondria. Let's support mass activation. Let's really work on optimizing our vagus nerve. And then if you do have long haul symptoms, those are the cures that I really think are important to work on. I mean, when Bodhi was sick, one of the things that we did every day when he was sick was practice gratitude. <laughs> and, you know, and, and we did our, our breathing exercises. There's a really fun, um, great kids app for mindfulness and meditation. It's called the Stop, Breathe, Think Kids app. And there's there's a, an exercise, a little mission, an animated mission called Square Breathing, which Bodhi and I had done anyway before COVID, just when he would get anxious or worked up about like doing a little presentation in front of his first grade class, you know, little things like that. And Square Breathing, you know, there's, there's a box, right? There's a fish that goes up one side of the box and you, you take a big breath in. And then as a fish moves across, you hold your breath. As the fish goes down, you exhale. And as a fish goes across, you hold your breath and you just do the square breathing, right? So when Bodhi started to get anxious and, and sick, you know, with, with COVID, uh, we did our square breathing every day. Um, we, we practice our gratitude every day. And um, it was so clear. This is where I want parents to understand. This is not just, you know, a side optional, oh, I'll practice gratitude when I have time. It really is one of the things I think that helped Bodhi move, move the needle to getting him out of the hospital so fast. Um, because of course in the hospital, he's monitored 24 yeah. seven. He had a pulse oximeter on his finger. I could watch his heart rate on the monitor, watch his oxygen saturations as his oxygen levels would dip. Of course, 
as a mama, right? My mama, my mama brain kicks in. I'm like, okay, Bodhi, are you okay? You know, how do you feel? Right. I'd be like, okay, breathe, breathe. And then he'd be, he'd kind of start to get worked up his oxygen levels. Of course, they would drop even further. And he, and at one point he's like, mama, stop. You're scaring me. Right. So when I would stop myself, calm, I tell Bodhi, let's stand up, you know, let's, let's do our square breathing right? Let's say really loud and proud, our healing mantras. You know, my lungs are strong. My body is strong. I'm getting stronger and stronger every day. Literally within minutes, his oxygen levels would pop back up and go even higher than they were, you know, before. So I I saw that as this immediate feedback, right? This immediate, when you're getting anxious and worked up, your your heart rate's going to go up. Your oxygen levels are going to start to go down. This is even when we're not sick. So, so important to train our vagus nerve, train that, you know, mindfulness muscle in our brain so that we can access that and use that when we are sick. Absolutely. And so well said. And what you're saying is not woo-woo, airy-fairy, although I think there's a place for woo-woo and I love and I embrace (laughs) that. But you know what you're saying is hardcore science. Like what you're talking about is actually getting into the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in in inhibiting lower brain centers, which tend to be more sympathetic. And your PFC is very parasympathetic. Its primary job is to inhibit those lower brain centers and it's to activate your vagus nerve, which is like, I mean, I am I've always been in awe of this nerve because it's like, they call it like the social nerve, the wandering nerve. It literally attaches to every single organ in your body. Like how amazing that we can do a practice like diaphragmatic breathing or, you know, some, you know, I've used gurgling and, and, you know, with patients and other, other, other ways to, to, to uh, stimulate vagal tone. Um, How amazing is it that we can have something free cheap, accessible for all to, to deal with what often is sympathetic dominance, right? It's often we live in this sort of sympathetic dominant tone, you know, or sympathetic tone. And for you to be able to have that awareness with Bodhi, I mean, what a gift to him. I mean, that's, that's incredible. So, uh, well, and, you know, to your point, you know, we, we are, even pre-COVID, we were all living in a sympathetic dominant state, right? That yeah. fight or flight response, go, go, go. I don't have enough time. I can't do X, Y, and Z and um, not getting enough sleep. And we've been pushed into an, a, an even higher state right now, especially if your kids are at home like mine and you're mm-hmm. trying to help them support them at school, you know, with homeschooling and you're working still and, you know, trying to just manage life. And so, um, you know, now more than ever, it's so important to, to take the time with you and your kids to really engage that vagus nerve. I mean, even just hugging and kissing and singing will do that, right? Um, So taking those moments out, it really will. I mean, even if you're thinking, well, I'm too stressed to do this. I'm worried about getting sick. Well, it does. I mean, there's evidence to show that it does increase your white blood cells ability to fight infections. It decreases inflammatory cytokines so that you can be in a better state of inflammation heading into COVID um, so that we don't get into a risk of developing cytokine storm and inflammation out of control. Mm -hmm. 
Let's uh, let's shift gears for a moment because I want to talk a little bit about what your understanding is and what you know around specifically around children, around the ACE2 and like the mechanism of infection for kids. Because we know, and we were talking about this in the pre-chat, oftentimes when we talk about pediatrics, we sort of lump everyone under 20 into yeah. that group, right? Yeah. But of course, there's like different sort of cohorts uh, in terms of increase or decrease susceptibility to uh, a COVID-19 infection. At least that's what my understanding is in, in, in the literature. Yeah. Um, maybe you can speak to, and, you know, for, I mean, I'm sure everybody on the planet has, you know, if they're kind of into COVID or trying to figure it out, it's like, okay, I, like I've heard about this ACE2 thing. Like I kind of know I've, first time I heard of it, but like, this is the, this is the way that the virus, you know, gains access. Like walk us, walk us through why our kids seem to be at least um, not as susceptible to infection and maybe tie that in with ACE2, you know, if you want to talk about the NLRP3 or did I say that right? (laughs) (laughs) NLRP3 inflammasome. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it is fascinating. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it is funny to think about how compressed time has become, right? Because, you know, back January, February, when we were hearing about COVID-19, I mean, that seems like ages ago, but we, we have literally, we have, you know, 10 months 11 months of data on COVID-19, right? I mean, we're in the infancy of knowing, but, you know, we know so much more still, you know, right now than we did back in February and March um, when here in the States, we were really starting to get affected and in Canada as well. Um, and so um, by now, most people have heard of the ACE2 receptor, right? The uh, It's actually not a receptor. Um, it's an enzyme, the angiotensin converting enzyme 2. It's an enzyme that's attached to the cell membranes of virtually all of our cells in our body. So it kind of sits, you know, on our cell membranes. And the reason it's called a receptor, it's actually a functional receptor because it's the site that the SARS-CoV-2 virus will attach to via its spike protein to kind of get, make its way into our cells. Um, And of course we have ACE2 enzyme receptors um, on our nasal passages, in our lungs, but we also have ACE2 receptors in our gut, in our heart, um, in our kidneys, maybe even in our brain cells, right? So that in a way explains why there's so many symptoms associated with initial COVID-19 infection. Um, One of the reasons why we think that children may have more mild infections, you know, either asymptomatic to mild infections is because children tend to have fewer ACE2 enzymes as functional receptors. They're just not as fully developed yet. Um, We don't know, and interestingly, women too have fewer ACE2 receptors than men. And we know as far as severe COVID complications and risk of death, men are slightly at an increased higher risk, not majorly, but a little bit, maybe 55%, you know, are men, right? Um, even, Even in children, they're finding boys have a slightly higher predisposition to, you know, go on to develop M. MISC or have more severe COVID complications. Um, so we do know from the studies so far that children, of course, can get COVID, <laughs> like Bodie and Kenzie. Um, children can get very sick, but most don't. Um, children can transmit COVID-19, but children under the year, under the age of 10 are much less likely to transmit COVID-19, which may be why, at least here in the States, when we're looking at the data of various schools opening in person, whether fully or in hybrid models, um, elementary schools tend to be faring uh, faring pretty well. Um, High schools, not as well. 
right? Um, colleges, of course, people have seen the reports of colleges, you know, with, with their cases going up and that's starting to go down a little bit. Whether or not, you know, I, I do believe that younger kids are less likely to transmit COVID-19. It's not a zero risk though, right? Which is mm-hmm. where we have to um, acknowledge that, you know, educators and staff who may be at higher risk due to their pre-existing conditions, um, you know, may, may be very concerned about that, that small risk. Um, but at the same time for high schoolers and college students, is it about the increased transmissibility, you know, increased infectivity? Probably that's part of it. And also probably because they, you know, they're, they're taking, you know, having higher risk behaviors, right? I mean, our younger kids, they're mostly home. I mean, Kenzie and Bodie, like two weeks ago was the first time I actually took them out in my car because Peter has been mostly, you know, driving them around. I mean, we're not even driving around. I mean, we're home, right? Like, oh my gosh, we haven't been in your car in so long, right? I'm like, yeah, it's been months, right? But high schoolers are going out, college students. So so there's um, there's the ACE2, uh, you know, phenomena. What's interesting is for ch- um, children and adults, what they're finding is if they present with gut symptoms, whether it's nausea and vomiting or diarrhea or abdominal pain, that seems to be more closely correlated with an increased risk for more severe illness. So that's just something to think about if you're, if you are presenting or your children are presenting with the gut symptoms like Bodhi did, right? I mean, his very first symptom was abdominal pain, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And he did have nausea. He never threw it, but he had some nausea. So um, that may, that may pretend that perhaps the virus is, is um, attaching to more sites already, right? In your gut and in your lungs, right? As opposed to just in your respiratory tract. Now, it's not just a story about ACE2 though. There's also the CD147 uh, um, receptor that's been identified. And CD147 receptors are mostly on um, red blood cells and our immune cells called T cells. So that may be why we're finding the blood clotting abnormalities that we're seeing in some adults, right? The strokes that are occurring. And MISC is also a vascular phenomenon, right? Kawasaki is a vascular inflammatory condition. So we have those, you know, factors that maybe why kids maybe and adults may be presenting with some of the symptoms, but that doesn't explain everything, right? Because you can have these symptoms, but, you know, still have mild illness and still recover. So what is it that's then, um, triggering some people to move on into more moderate to severe illness? And that's where the NLRP3 inflammasome takes place. Um, I mean, all of these initials, right? I mean, it's kind of I like, did I get like, the, oh my gosh, right? the R backwards? Did, right? <laughs> so the NLRP3 inflammasome is, uh, is uh, the inflammatory cascade that's triggered by you know, a variety of infections, right? Including SARS-CoV-2, right? The virus that causes COVID-19. Um, we need to step back here and recognize, you know, from an, from an immune perspective, from a functional medicine perspective, inflammation is not a bad thing. So when you, when you get sick um, and you develop a fever or, you know, you develop, you know, different aches and pains, inflammation is trying to do its job, right? That acute inflammation is what our body needs, right? To, to mount that immune defense really um, produce those inflammatory cytokines to fight and kill the infection going on, right? So we want some inflammation to occur. It's when inflammation goes unchecked, right? Develops into cytokine storm or sepsis, or when inflammation goes on to be chronic, that it's not a good thing, right? So we want to have parents be aware of that because as you mentioned in the beginning, right? What's the first thing that parents do when kids have fever, 
I mean, what's the first thing that most physicians and nurses do when kids have fever? They pop the kid with Tylenol, right? I mean, if you go to the ER and your kid has a fever, that's one of the first things, even before anyone lays eyes on your child, they take the temperature, kid has a fever over 100.3, and then boom, they get the Tylenol, right? Um, what I want to, what one of my, um, my, missions is to get rid of fever phobia, <laughs> you know, for parents and Amen. practitioners, Amen. right? Amen. Um, yes. Because fever yeah. helps your body fight infections, yeah. right? Suppressing fever artificially with things like Tylenol have been shown to prolong the duration of illness and even actually um, prolong the shedding of virus from your nose. So you may be sicker for longer and actually be more contagious for longer, right? right? right. And then Tylenol has a whole other set of problems because it interferes uh, and reduces our levels of glutathione, our master antioxidant, which is so important for fighting infections and protecting our lungs, right? And so when people are getting seriously sick with COVID-19, again, the inflammation that initially was a good thing is just starting to go a little out of control, right? Develop the cytokine storm. And that's where the NLRP3 inflammasome is not being shut off correctly. It's not being modulated correctly, right? Because we have all of these amazing um, immune modulatory cytokines, right? These immune balancing cytokines that, that don't just suppress the immune system like steroids. They say, they tell your immune system that's inflammatory that, hey, your job is done. Let's settle back down. Let's get back to homeostasis, right? Let's get back to that state of normal kind of optimal health. Um, what's fascinating with the NLRP3 inflammasome, we know there are things that can modulate the NLRP3 inflammasome. What does that mean? When inflammation is done its job, we can then do use certain supplements in a targeted way to tell our immune system, hey, let's just, let's not Knock it off NLRP3. Let's kind of settle back down. Um, and those, there are some things like vitamin D. Um, there's specialized pro-resolving mediators that I spoke about, melatonin, right? These are all the things that I had Bodhi on. And I probably would have started him sooner if I'd known he had COVID, but you know, all those tests were negative at first. But anyhow, I think those, you know, those are really mainstays, you know, in supporting mitochondria, right? For when you're sick to really get that NLRP3 inflammasome that's that is potentially going a little haywire and uh, pushing us into cytokine storm to normalize, reduce when it's done its job and to then have us fully recover. I so appreciate your choice of words using the word modulate rather than, you know, quash or get yeah. rid of or stop because really this pathway, this acute inflammatory, it is such a brilliant design, you know, when, in terms of doing what it's supposed to do with denaturing the proteins that are, you know, of the in, invading pathogen and whatnot. So I think uh, I just want to appreciate, I'm a word nerd. So I appreciate the word modulate because <laughs> that's actually the word that we want to be using. Yes, um, for sure. I have a couple of questions because I want to start, you mentioned vitamin D, uh, SPM, melatonin uh, as mitochondrial, as proxies for helping mitochondrial health. But just before we kind of get, I want to move into some of the, you know, preventative or rehabilitative uh, protocols that you, um, that you've been speaking about. I just, uh, there was a question that kind of came up in my head as you were talking about, you know, uh, you mentioned Bodhi when he had like, he was crying at the table, he had stomach pain. Uh, and then people who present with these gut this gut yeah. dysfunction initially may be at higher risk. Is there, um, I mean, we've seen this in adults, so I don't know if this is true in children as well. Do we see any sort of pre-existing conditions or someone who um, 
you know, maybe has had uh, complications, like you said, with strep in the past or multiple use of antibiotics where the gut microbiome might not be what it should be or potential hyperpermeability in the gut. Is there, are we seeing any patterns in terms of people who end up being long haulers or developing MISC um, that they have any pre-existing gut dysfunction, whether it's dysbiosis or hyperpermeability or anything, or do we not know that yet? You know, I don't think we know that yet. I mean, I, I, I wish that we would all, you know, have a standard testing, you know, testing for gut function, gut dysbiosis, intestinal permeability, because if we could address and manage that, I mean, it, our, we would, our immune systems would be so much stronger. Yeah. Our nervous system, our brains, our mood, I mean, would be so much healthier. Um, I don't know that yet. Um, I, I would presume that we would find, if we really look at that functional level, medicine level, right, that functional status of health um, and that optimal status of health that we want everyone to be in, I would imagine that there would be some imbalances. And then there are also you know, some genetic predispositions too. Right. Um, you know, I mentioned that, um, you know, I do have some autoimmunity in my family. My father had type one diabetes. Um, there are some cancers in my family. My mother just passed away over the summer with, with metastatic esophageal cancer. My grandmother had um, intestinal um, colon and breast cancer. So there are some things in my family that I know okay, we probably have some methylation concerns. We probably have some detoxification concerns. So, did some of that maybe also set the stage for Bodhi being a little bit more predisposed? Uh, probably so, right? I mean, we can do our best to kind of uh, mitigate the the you know the deck of cards we've been dealt you know in life. Right? right. We can do the a really good job. Right? Yeah. 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 Yes. Um, but but you know I think that's where knowing that you know can really help us uh, prevent um, some of the long term complications. Because one of the things that was startling to me to read last week was that. Um, in the patients who end up being the sickest of our patients with COVID-19, um, they there was once a small study, but they looked at patients who were hospitalized and they took blood measurements with autoimmune antibodies, autoantibodies before, um, you know, right at, at admission. And then, you know, as they got sicker and sicker and getting sicker and sicker correlated with then the new presence of these autoantibodies, right? These mm-hmm. autoimmune antibodies right. that um, like your ANA, which is a, a possible marker for lupus, you know, rheumatoid factor, thyroid antibodies. Um, as we know, again, I mean, the, we have this epidemic of autoimmunity in kids and adults, and we don't know for those people developing these autoimmunities, autoimmune antibodies when they're sick with COVID, are those just antibodies that are present because now their immune system has gone haywire, right? Or are they going to last and are they going to then be at risk for developing these autoimmune conditions? Because we can have autoantibodies without having the actual clinical autoimmune disease. But that is something that we're going to really have to watch and something that we really need to do research on so that, you know, at least we as as functional medicine integrative practitioners can um, be aware of supporting our patients. How do we support them so that the scale isn't tipped over into them developing outright lupus, outright Hashimoto's, outright, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move into let's move into uh, what I would call rehab or some of the protocols that you've developed. You've mentioned already vitamin D, uh, SPM, melatonin. Of course, melatonin. We know that you know if there is an antioxidant out there for the mitochondria, it's going to be melatonin because it's one of the things that can actually get into the cell and kind of clean up, clean up stuff. So, 
recognizing that children come in all shapes and sizes, they're all different ages, you know, if there could be a minimum effective dose or an, a, you know, a tolerable upper limit for each of these, uh, do you have, you know, specific recommendations in terms of vitamin D? I know I've heard you talk about mega dosing before on vitamin D, um, melatonin, what would be the dosage recommendation? Um, and maybe, because we can't talk about all children, maybe you can talk about it like maybe per, you know, per kilogram or per gram or something of or, or yeah, per well, of body weight. So really, you know, of course, it depends on, on their weight and age and, you know, yeah. we, and even our genetic uh, predispositions too, right? Because I have some kids who, you know, I, I have the, I have them on a fairly hefty dose of vitamin D and I check their blood levels and they're just not moving the needle, right? They're just not able to get their vitamin D levels up. And so we know that some people do have um, genetic variants that that interfere with absorption of vitamin D. Vitamin um, D binding protein, man. Mm-hmm. Gets you yep. time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to point people to... Um, uh, my article on my site, um, where because really and truly, when we're thinking about what supplements we want to give to children, um, the first and foremost is really going to be using food as medicine and lifestyle mm-hmm. as medicine, right? That I just want to preface that by saying, you know, um, even more important than taking supplements is going to be how you live your life, right? At the same time, I totally get that some of your kids are going to be super picky right now. They're not eating a wide variety of vegetables yet, right? We keep trying. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you know, life right now is stressful. Maybe they're not getting enough sleep or exercise. But um, I have an article called, it's, it's called A Pediatrician's Pandemic Immune Support Plan. And it's on my a blog site. I think I even pinned the article up to the top because that talks about all the foods that are so important, the vitamins, the nutrients that are really important for for support, our immune support, um, not just against COVID, but now as we head into the flu season against cold and flus, right? Um, and so I do, and I do have suggested dosages there okay. with optimal, with upper tolerable lo- limits, okay. right? For, for certain nutrients. So, so we'll make sure uh, that that's in the show notes. We'll make yeah, sure so, that's there. Yeah. Um, so zinc is uh, one of the most important nutrients right now. Zinc is so important for, um, immune support. It's uh, Zinc actually can, in vitro, has been found to kill the SARS virus, the SARS-CoV-1 virus. We don't have much data against SARS-CoV-2, um, but zinc, you know, I do think is an important part of immune support, also for anxiety, right? Super important for supporting immune system. Um, some studies on zinc with colds and flus, prevention and, and treatment. So zinc, um, zinc is largely tied with animal protein sources, right? Um, now, you can be a vegetarian and have good zinc levels, but you might have to try a little bit harder. Nuts and seeds, pumpkin seeds, hands down are my first, you know, you know, option for um, getting your zinc levels up if, if you are a vegetarian. Um, but zinc comes in supplements. Zinc is one of those that, you know, can definitely upset your tummy. But for most kids, I mean, little kids are probably giving about maybe five milligrams up to maybe 20, 25 milligrams. If you're a teenager, adults around the same 25, 30 milligrams of zinc or so. Um, vitamin D recommendations, it's fascinating the controversy around how much vitamin D people should take and what the optimal levels are of vitamin D. <laughs> um, but you know, the functional optimal level is likely not the level that your very conventional doc is going to tell you, right? So if you get your vitamin D levels checked or your children get their vitamin D levels checked and your doc tells you, oh, it's normal, I always want to know what's the number 
right? Because the number, I mean, here at Quest Labs, the normal range is anywhere from 20 to 100. That's a huge range, right? That's huge. Yeah. 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 And so I've had some kids, you know, get tested or some moms get tested. And, you know, if you are pregnant, I think vitamin D is one of the most important vitamins to have optimized. But, um, you know, I'll have their docs say it's normal. And when we get the number back, it's 22, right? Which is definitely not optimal. So especially as we head into the winter months, I would love kids to and adults to be at a 60 to 80, right, in their levels. And that's kids and adults, same level, right? Um, and so to get there, we often need to use a dose that's a little higher than the 400 I use per day, you know, that, that most would recommend conventionally. So um, I, I typically go by the vitamin D council's recommendations. If you don't know your levels, these are, are going to be safe levels to take. Um, so about a thousand I use a vitamin D3 per 25 pounds of body weight. So it's 12.2 kilos, right? Of body weight, um, up to 5,000 I use daily. Um, so most adults are going to end up taking 5,000 I use daily. Many teenagers are going to be taking 5,000 I use daily. And we kind of go on up. Now, these, this is what's considered the maintenance dose by the vitamin D council. So the dose that you would need to take to, keep an optimal level where it is. So many of my kids, even in the middle of the summer where they're outside all day long in the sun, have this beautiful golden tan, are still suboptimal or outright deficient. Mm-hmm. So we may need to bump that up higher, but I would I, I would suggest if you um if you're not sure about your or your children's level, stay with these levels. These are these are definitely within the upper tolerable safety limits. Um, and and we'll be good because there are some studies now enough studies out there now showing that, you know, having optimal vitamin D levels, or I should put it another way, that vitamin D deficiency is associated with more severe outcomes in COVID-19. So it makes sense to try to optimize your vitamin D levels to have the best chance as possible to having better outcomes if you or your children do get COVID-19. Okay, great. And I'll make sure that that article is linked in the show notes uh, with all of those, with all of those dosages and recommendations. It's funny um, whenever, so I know 400 I use is sort of recommended for children, but I almost scoff at it in the same way that when I look at a recipe and it calls for one clove of garlic, it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Come on. You know, it's like I use like half a thing, you know? That's um, right. <laughs> That's awesome. So you, you mentioned uh, flu season and um, I told you in the, you know, in the pre-chat, I've been sort of avoiding the, you know, the COVID-19 vaccine, like the matrix, like someone will like, you know, ask me a question and I try to dodge it. But uh, I think that it is uh, very appropriate to bring up um, with you. Um, I think that there's a lot, I'll just kind of pre-frame this and say, I think there's a lot we don't know. Um, I think that what is not being spoken about in the media is some of the natural remedies that you just outlined or how we can really build up our innate immunity and not really just rely on the acquired immunity that may be conferred from a vaccine, assuming that it's safe. Um, so would you uh, would you do me the honor and speak about you know your thoughts on the COVID-19 uh, vaccine, both for you know, maybe the adults and the families that you see, mm-hmm. as well as for our children what that means. Um, and even, even before you, even before you kind of, uh, answer it, I I just want to say that this, you know, vaccines in general, like it's, it's kind of this crazy, and we've seen this with COVID-19 where things have become so politicized that the science is almost irrelevant. And I, I absolutely, I'm not a political person. I, 
I, I avoid politics like the plague. I always think that people who go into politics are just people who could not make it in the real world. And that's why they went into politics. So I've always sort of stayed away from it, but you just can't really avoid it in science, um, especially when it comes to this COVID-19 vaccine. So um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, yeah. on what you think about it. Uh, maybe some shortcomings or some concerns you have, some pros on it. Like, tell me, tell me everything that you're thinking. Yeah, so I, I always... Um, like to preface any vaccine conversation with um, letting people know that I am neither 100% pro-vaccine nor 100% anti-vaccine. And right there, I probably have listeners who are going to stop listening to me either way, right? Um, Because my, my mission in life is to make sure that we are doing things optimally for kids, right? understanding the risks and benefits. And let's face it, no matter what, every single medical intervention, every single natural intervention, right, is going to have risks and benefits. And as mamas, I believe that that we should be as fully informed as possible, right? I mean, sometimes the the data is not there just yet, right? And, And we really want to try to remove some of our emotion from this and look at as much evidence as we can. And so, you know, I am 100% pro-child and 100% pro-safe interventions to the extent possible. Um, And again, you know, for those who have already made up their minds that vaccines are 100% safe and effective or have already made up their minds that that vaccines are 100% dangerous and not effective, I mean, this conversation is is not for you, right? That that I'm not the right uh, pediatrician to be... um, listening to, right? Um, Because I really like to present as much information as possible, knowing that these are tough, tough times. These are tough decisions. Um, The the COVID-19 vaccines that are being fast-tracked, I mean, even very conventional doctors and researchers have major concerns about them. (laughs) This is not woo-woo out there. The fact that, you know, the majority of of Americans, and I'm not sure where Canada lies, but I would guess it's similar. We kind of do the same. We just follow you guys. (laughs) Do whatever you guys do. We should follow you guys. (laughs) Um, But, you know, the fact that the majority at this point are saying that they would have hesitations about taking a fast Dr. Paul Offit has come out and say that he's staunch advocate for vaccination. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if I take it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. this is not, um, it's not heresy to say, whoa, let's take a look at this vaccine that is being fast-tracked like no other vaccine or or drug, you know, in history, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and think, well, do I really want to take it if we don't have a proven record of safety and effectiveness, right? Um, the other thing for parents to know is uh, that, you know, the vaccines that are being developed, I mean, most of the vaccines right now that are in trials are RNA vaccines, um, mRNA vaccines. And while there are many vaccines on, on kids' vaccination schedules, and none of them is an mRNA vaccine. We have never, ever used an RNA vaccine in humans. Um, and so that's that's one thing we just don't know. I mean, we don't know how effective it's going to be. We also don't know, you know, what some of the potential long-term side effects are going to be to using these vaccinations. Um, 
some like uh, the Astra- AstraZeneca trial was was halted because there was a case of transverse myelitis, which is an autoimmune phenomena, an inflammation of the spine. Um, and we do know, I mean, if you look at the package inserts for vaccinations, we know that there are certain vaccines that are more closely tied with risks for autoimmunity. So that's where I kind of stop and and you know think you know, with my brain a little bit about what's going on here, knowing that, you know, this long haul syndrome is more common in patients now than we had thought that autoimmune antibodies are being produced um, uh, by by our sickest of our COVID patients. We already have an epidemic autoimmunity. Um, Could this vaccine maybe prevent COVID and those long-term autoimmune problems? Or could this vaccine be one of those vaccines that, that, trigger us over a little bit sooner into autoimmunity. I mean, we know the flu vaccine is case in point. I mean, that, you know, um, is one of our vaccines that is is most closely tied with autoimmunity and something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my, you know, my mother's, my sister's mother-in-law passed away from Guillain-Barre syndrome related to the flu vaccine, right? Still rare, right? Still rare, but, but, it's a known phenomena. So um, if you already have an underlying autoimmune predisposition or autoimmune condition, I mean, there's it's not a great win situation, right? <laughs> because you know you may be more at risk for COVID-19, but you may be more at risk for complications from the vaccine. So this is where working with a functional medicine practitioner to really optimize your gut health because of the, uh, the gut immune connection, we need to really optimize, right? right. Um, if you do get sick, we need to think about those immune modulators so the immune system can stay as regulated as possible when you're sick. Yeah. Um, so... The other thing to know with children, because I've had parents concerned, you know, will my kids be mandated to get the COVID vaccine? This vaccine, if if we do have a vaccine available by the end of this year, end of 2020, um, it will only be for adults and likely the supply will only be for, um, you know, whatever the uh, immunization council deems. It could be frontline workers, essential workers. You know, we still don't know yet. Um, so I wouldn't spend too much time right now worrying about the, the COVID vaccine, right? Because we're just not there yet um, in terms of having it, first of all, approved, <laughs> you know, and also, you know, That's having enough, yeah. Yeah, yeah, having yeah. enough quantity to even affect people like us, right? You know, right. the commoners, right? You know, the people that who might be down <laughs> downstream, um, you know, for anyway, from being even, you know, offered the vaccine. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and certainly for our children, that's going to be way down the road. So don't, you know, we have enough on our minds right now. Don't spend too much of your mental energy on that piece of it. Right. 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 And not hanging um, your hat on that being the solution, at least in the near future. Um, and it, it, it won't be, not in the near future, right? Yeah. For the rest of this season, maybe even for next season, if COVID does make a, a winter surge, as some are predicting, um, you know, it, it uh, it's likely not going to be an option. So don't hold your breath, mm-hmm. right? We cannot live in isolation forever. Um, we need to figure out how to build up our immune resilience so that we can then take these measured risks to increase our socialization, right, for ourselves and our children, um, at, you know, until the time that, that you know, we're able to be out in our communities, you know, more um, with more confidence, mm-hmm. um, whether or not there's a vaccine, right? Right, right? So, I mean, there, there are, yeah, don't, don't hold your breath for it. 
And what about, uh, you know, they, we always, I mean, I'm, I sort of cringe that they call this time of the year flu season. It's like, no, it's fall. Fall yeah. is a season. <laughs> flu is not a season, but you know, it is a time where we do see more influenza. There tends to be, you know, as you were saying, like the vitamin D, like we're not getting the natural exposure from the sun, at least where I, you know, I'm on the East coast. So we get all four seasons, uh, less vitamin D, uh, that we're getting from the sun, maybe eating more sugar. You know, there's more, there's Halloween, there's the Thanksgiving, there's Christmas, there's, you know, uh, through the winter months, there tends to be more of an insurgence or more susceptibility to influenza. Is that something that you are, that your uh, families are asking about? Like, should I get the flu shot? What are some of the things that we want to be thinking about? Um, like who, like you were saying, like there's, you know, SNPs, like we have methylation, like some of us are really poor methylators. Some of us are really mm. poor you know, have sort of uh, susceptibility in terms of gut permeability and our ability to shed might be impaired. Um, uh, the vaccine, is it, is there, uh, do you have any resources that we can share with yeah. our listeners in terms of the flu and what we may be considering if, an, if we are considering getting the flu shot this year? Yes. I, you know, I would say um, that's, that is probably one of the most frequent questions I'm getting, you know, from, from my patients and also from, you know, moms online, you know, should we get the flu vaccine this year? Because of course, every fall um, season, we, we start hearing about the flu vaccine, get your flu vaccine. Um, but this year has been an even you know more extraordinary push, you know, for the flu vaccine. Um, and, you know, on, on, you know, all of the medical websites and media outlets, you'll see what are the top things you can do to protect yourself, you know, from COVID hand washing, mask wearing, social distancing, and get the flu shot, which right. doesn't quite make sense to me how that's necessarily going to help you from COVID. But um, but the flu vaccine, you know, I, I have a discussion about the flu vaccine every year. Um, you know, of course, this is a very controversial topic. And um, I mean, vaccines in general. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of... Uh, I mean, as you as you and I know, right? Censorship and and anything that has to do Correct. with trying to even trying just to have an open conversation. Like, let's just right? talk about informed consent. Can we have yes. that is being also shut down, which I which I don't necessarily appreciate as a yeah. as someone who's so trying to acquire knowledge on both sides, right? Yeah. yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, the the flu vaccine. Well, we have to think about you know, um, I mean when we look at any intervention, right, and we try to think about making decisions, we want to look at safety profile and effectiveness profile, and also risks, uh, you know, for your child of, of getting sick with whatever, you know, the vaccine is for. Um, so, you know, there have been, there was one very small report, because one of the concerns from, from doctors that we don't know is, well, what, can you get COVID and the flu at the same time? What if you get COVID and flu at the same time, right? That, and that's a very valid question. Um, you know, back in January and December, December, January, February, when I was seeing, uh, you know, a lot of patients with influenza, we weren't testing for COVID. So we really don't know, right, if they had um simultaneous infections. However, once COVID testing became more, uh, more available and certainly, you know, on the East coast where COVID just ravished, you know, like uh, New York and New Jersey, where my sister lives, um, co-infections with COVID and influenza were exceedingly rare, right? I mean, we just weren't seeing it. So, um, and then there was a very small study that came out. Um, I mean, very small, but of hospitalized patients who um, did have COVID-19 and influenza and um, the, their outcomes were not any worse than if you had COVID alone or influenza alone, right? So I mean, we 
have, you know, some, some data now. Yeah. So some yeah. encouraging data that um, getting both COVID and flu at the same time is, is unusual. Um, and, and that if you do happen to be, you know, the one of the few that gets COVID and flu at the same time, um, it's, it's likely not going to uh, cause you to increase an increase in worse outcomes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this, the, this whole idea of the twindemic, right. You know, that the media is now spreading and this kind of new level of mass hysteria, I think is, is so unethical. I mean, we don't know if there's going to be a twindemic. We want to be yes. prepared. Yes. We want to be prepared for sure, you know, for anything that comes our way this winter, because we know, you know, the common cold coronavirus increases in the winter time. Um, I always talk with my patients and teach a masterclass on supporting the immune system during the fall winter months anyway, every year, right? Because we know this is a time where people tend to get a little more sick, right? With, with frequent illnesses. Um, so, you know, yes, we can say we're, we're concerned that there may be this convergence of COVID and flu. And yes, maybe the flu vaccine will provide some protection against the flu, but let's talk about what else we can do in the meantime, right? I, I wish the media would just run with like, listen, vitamin D is going to help with right. seasonal affective disorder and anxiety that's running rampant. It's going to help support you against influenza. It's going to help support you against COVID-19, right? I mean, let's let's talk about the real things that we can do, mm-hmm. right? To support us globally, right? Just a, at a cellular level against everything. Um, but when we talk about influenza specifically and talk about the flu vaccine, um, it can be effective, right? We know it can be effective in reducing um, uh, your chance of getting influenza. It really depends on the year and depends on the flu vaccine because the way the flu vaccine is manufactured the year before. So our current flu vaccine for the 2020-2021 season was uh was developed, the four strains that go into it were chosen last winter. So scientists try to predict which strains are going to be circulating in the next winter months. Um, And some years, the researchers get a really good match and the strains that are in the vaccine match what's circulating. Other years, there's not any match, right? So um, what's important, and when there's not a good match, there's 0% effectiveness, right? So Effectiveness over the years have ranged anywhere from maybe 19% to 60%. And if the vaccine is a, the strains in the vaccine are a good match to the circulating vaccines, let's say they have a hundred percent good match. They're still at best, maybe about 40 to 60% effectiveness, right? It's not a hundred percent. Now that 40 to 60% effectiveness, there's like a 50, 50 chance of whether it's going to help you or not. You may be willing to, to take that effectiveness, right? I mean, if you have, um, you know, really chronic conditions and you're worried about complications from the flu, that's then yes. I mean, that 50, 50 might be worthwhile. Um, if you know you're completely healthy and your children are completely healthy with no risk factors for having serious flu um, outcomes, then then maybe not, right? This is where having that informed consent, right? right? Mm-hmm. There also was a really large so Cochrane, the Cochrane Review um, is it's a database of review um, gold review of yeah. you know gold standard of looking at you know a particular topic. Researchers get together and try to look at all the different uh, studies out there on that one particular topic that are good studies, right? They have very strict criteria in terms of what they include in their reviews. And a Cochrane review of the flu vaccine found that um, the, I'm going to look, I have this up on my page because I want to give the right information. So this was a 2010 review of 50 flu vaccine studies. Um, And the Cochrane review found that influenza vaccines have a modest effect in in reducing 
influenza symptoms and working days lost. So some effect. Um, there's no direct, there's no evidence that they affect complications such as pneumonia or transmission, right? So I, just, I want people to be aware of that as well, right? We don't know for sure if it actually will reduce the likelihood of developing flu complications. Now, when we look at this year's flu um, coming around, um, I always look at the Southern Hemisphere, mostly Australia, right? I look at Australia, what was their flu season like? Because their flu um, time is our summer, right? Their winter is our summer. Um, And so when you look at Australia's flu season, the equivalent of their CDC, what they wrote was that, I mean, the the flu was basically non-existent. And I, you know, because I like to look to see what strains were circulating in Australia and is it a good match to the vaccine? Um, And their CDC equivalent writes on their on their webpage that there really wasn't enough circulating flu to know whether or not the vaccine was a good match. So we really don't have that data, right? right Coming into right. you know the northern northern hemisphere's flu months. Um, and then another study came out that really in the southern hemisphere in general, there was really almost no flu. Um, Australia, Chile, and South Africa combined, right? Those three countries combined during their influenza season, had only 51 cases of confirmed influenza out of 83,307 specimens tested, right? I mean, that's hardly anything. So while, yes, I mean, we I just had a report, there, a news um, article came out this morning, uh, you know, as I was looking at my, um, at my email that there was a, a gentleman over in the East Bay who came down with influenza. Um, we always have throughout the year sporadic cases of influenza, mm-hmm. right? You know, whether or not we're going to have a big surge in influenza, if we look to Australia, which we often mirror, uh, it seems like probably not, right? So then, you know, with the flu vaccine, it's just thinking about how much, you know, what what risks are we willing to take or not on either side, right? right you know, right. Of, of getting the flu vaccine or getting influenza. Um, I totally get from a public health perspective um, that, you know, what, what we're trying to do, what the public health officials are trying to do is um, reduce the the burden on hospitals, right? You know, for you know, anticipating that we will likely have an increase, a surge in patients who are requiring hospitalizations from COVID and from, and from influenza this winter. So I absolutely 100% get that. But from an individual standpoint, especially if our children are going to be home from school, like many of our kids already are, you know, still are, um, and we're going to be practicing those public health measures that we're doing with COVID anyway, like, you know, washing our hands frequently, keeping our hands away from our face, staying a bit socially distanced, you know, wearing a mask, I mean, all those things that can help mitigate COVID will also help to mitigate the flu. Mm -hmm. Um, So like I said, it's just being aware of those risks. And if you um, do choose to get the flu vaccine, I typically, um, if they're look at family history. And if we have concerns, there might be some methylation or detoxification concerns, um, mitochondrial concerns, then I do support children, you know, before and after um, vaccines or any medical intervention or any illness for that matter, right? I just support them, you know, with things like CoQ10 and glutathione and vitamin C, some methyl B12. So there are things we can do um, to also help support your children um, should they get the flu vaccine. Right. And this is, you know, you've said this so beautifully because I think that 
the science is always nuanced, right? Like you're not, I really, um, I tend to sort of pull away from any kind of extreme because it's like the devil's always in the details. So I just really appreciate your ability to parse through some of this very complex, you know, in, you know, immunology and inoculation. Like these are very complex uh, subjects, and you have really laid out um, a very loving, inclusive, non-hysterical um, uh, viewpoint. So I just want to thank you for that. And I'm just looking at our time, and I know that we've gone a little over time, and you've been so gracious. So I wanted to just wrap this up by really just singing your praises. I was saying this to you in the pre-chat. Um, I might've said this on the podcast, but I'll say it again. Like it's very rare to find uh, someone of your stature, a pediatrician who really does look at the evidence in its totality and makes an informed decision um, that is based in science, that is evidence-based and takes a whole child view, a whole person view uh, to care rather than just sort of, you know, whatever the standards of care are, that's kind of what I'm doing and, and sort of punching through, punching through the day. So I really appreciate your brilliance and, you know, the, the way that you've explained things today. I think this can be so useful for my Bettys, for my listeners. So I wanted to thank <laughs> you so much for your time today. Oh, thanks, Stephanie. It's been great to have, to be here with you. I'm so glad that we got this to work. All right. So uh, Dr. Elisa Song, if people want to find you, they want to work with you or they want to find out more about your work, I know that you're doing a webinar on November 15th. So tell the people how they can find you. Where can they find you on social, online, every, all the places? Yeah. So the best place to find me is on my Healthy Kids, Happy Kids uh, blog site. It's www.healthykidshappykids.com. I have a ton of articles in there. On social, I, I post on Instagram. That's Healthy Kids underscore Happy Kids. And on Facebook, you can find me. Just search Elisa Song and Healthy Kids, Happy Kids. So I taught in April, a free masterclass on integrative and functional medicine strategies for the pandemic. And so I will be doing that again for, for our listeners on Sunday, November 15. And that's going to be really a broad sweep looking at how can we approach COVID and influenza, right? This, these cold and flu months to really support our kids' immune system, develop that immune resilience that, that we've been talking about and as a free masterclass. So that'll be available for anybody who would like to listen. Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks, Stephanie. All right. All right. So there you have it. My conversation with Dr. Song. I hope that you found this information invaluable in terms of helping you come to a better decision, whatever that decision might be for you and your family. I am such a big proponent of informed consent. And I think that the more we know, the better we are. So I hope that this was valuable for you. And I just wanted to bring up a, just a little squeak of information here. We are coming to the end of the year. And if you are, are listening this far into the podcast, you are my special Betty. You are the one who is who values completion as I do. And I wanted to invite you, if it is something that you are thinking about, to work one-on-one -on -one with me. I only take a few clients at a time because of the intense, you know, the, the work that it, that it takes and the amount of time that I like to put in to that. So if this is something that you would like to learn more about, you can email my team support 
at drstephanieestima.com. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T at D-R-S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E estima.com. And you can just put in the subject line luminous because that is what I want to make all my Bettys look and feel like. So you can get some more information through contacting my team. And if it's not a good fit, that's okay. You can still continue listening to the podcast. You can be part of my Betty army. And I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.